Hello, I'm Kristen Abel, co-founder and executive director of The Committed Project. The Committed Project is an organization created to help share the stories of professionals in higher education experiencing mental illness. By doing this, we hope to educate our fellow professionals about mental illness, increase support for those of us with mental illness, and stomp out the stigma associated with it. We've recently started a new podcast, so we're talking to a number of different individuals who also experience mental illness and work in higher ed. Can you tell us a little bit about your career journey and your current role in higher ed? Yeah, I, uh, I started my career about 10 years ago as a, uh, a residence life coordinator, which is the Canadian version of a, of a hall director, essentially. Um, and in Canada, you're not really required to have a master's before you take on a, a residence life coordinator or an RLC role. Uh, so I went into that about a year after I graduated from my, my undergrad degree. Uh, and I've worked at three different institutions now, all in the same role with various degrees of responsibility and uh, have moved around the, the country a little bit. Uh, in the process, but uh, I am excited to to share with you my, my story today a little bit. That's awesome. We really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Well, I'm excited to be here. Can you tell us, since you are excited to be here to talk about it, why don't you go ahead and tell us about uh, your experience with mental illness during your lifetime? As a kid, I always felt different from, from everyone else, not to a, a significant degree. But I always, I always felt a little, a little isolated from, from my friends, whereas they were all about, you know, going out and playing baseball and soccer and stuff like that. I was more interested uh, uh, to stay at home and be a giant nerd uh, and play with my action figures. And so it, I, I never really found a close knit group of friends until I got to, until I got to high school, uh, and then even more so until I entered my undergraduate degree. And it was probably in my undergrad that I first started to, to recognize that there was some depression going on and some, some suicide ideation for sure. Uh, I, never, I never made an attempt to, to take my life, but I certainly uh, struggled with the depression side of things. And it certainly isolated me from the friends that I, I did, the close friends I had made. And as I moved into my career, uh, any, anyone who works in residence life can tell you the high degree of, of responsibility in terms of on-call and supporting large student communities and sort of the, the work-life balance struggle. And so as my career progressed, I, I certainly felt that depression and that suicide ideation even, even more. And it was... It, it finally reached a point where the, the physical symptoms of, of the depression and the anxiety really kicked in. I fought the, the, the stuff inside my head for, for a very, very, very long time. Uh, and it was the physical symptoms of the anxiety that finally prompted me to, to seek, some, seek some professional help in terms of uh, my family doctor and my psychologist. And so it, it certainly... If you were mapping this on a chart, uh, you would, could certainly see that, that the depression and the anxiety grew over the course of my, my life. And mastering it has, 
uh, or at least responding to it in, a, in an effective way, uh, has, taken, has taken a lot of time for sure. If you're comfortable, would you mind talking a little bit about what sort of symptoms you were seeing with like the, like, how did you know you were depressed outside of the suicidal ideation? Or how did you know about or recognize the anxiety? It first sort of um, clicked for me when I, I was just not wanting to get out of bed or go to work or interact with the RA team I, I was working with at the time. And so it, being that lethargic, was certainly, certainly grew. Uh, I'm, I'm a fairly social person to begin with. I call myself an extroverted introvert. Uh, so I do certainly enjoy spending time with, with people and in social situations. But as it grew, I, I certainly noticed I was isolating myself a lot more. I didn't want to get out of bed. I'd cancel, I'd make plans with friends and then I'd cancel them. And it became a, a, a factor of recognizing that I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave my, my apartment. And that, that sort of struck me one day in an epiphany of what, what are you doing? Why are you just sitting here wishing your, your life away? And then the, the, the other symptoms that sort of kicked in, uh, were very, very physical. So feeling dizzy all the time, my hands were shaking. I was irritable. Yeah, at work, even though I had slept for for eight hours, ten hours, whatever the case may be, and my sense of humor, um, which is one of my better personality traits, uh, certainly felt dulled. I I was sweating a lot. I was dizzy, uh, and so it it finally it finally clicked that I needed to talk to someone because I felt like I was going to physically collapse, uh, and it was actually an RA that said to me that I just looked completely drained and exhausted, uh, which was obviously out of, out of character for me. And so it, it, it really was a, a convergence of noticing a lot of, of different physical symptoms and, and responding to that adequately. Thank you. I do know, you know, we've, when we look at the research, a lot of times people with, especially with anxiety, but also depression, tend to present with physical symptoms before they'll present with the other psychological symptoms. So it's interesting to hear you tell that, that story where that's very much what happened for you. Yeah, it, uh, it's funny because I, I've always been a very healthy person. Uh, I've never really been sick for extended periods of time. And so it, it was so strange that this, it's like someone flipped a switch, honestly, on me. And all of these symptoms just sort of showed up one day. And it was a very overwhelming experience because I had no idea what was going on. And it, it was only after that I, I finally pieced it together that I realized that it, this was not me being worn down or me just being tired. That there was something larger at play here that was very easy to ignore or to brush off as being like, well, you know, I have a lot of work, it's August. And August is super busy, and uh, I'm just tired, uh, and I just need a vacation, which was not the actual solution. Although vacations are great, it was not the solution to this uh, particular case at all. Right. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, once you were able to figure that out, what kind of treatment you, looked, you ended up working with? Yeah, so it was a three-pronged three sort of uh, response. Uh, the first was, my doctor was the first step, for sure. 
and really being honest. I, I think it's, I think people, or myself included, sometimes go to the doctor and uh, sugarcoat things because we don't like being there. And uh, it was, I had to just go in and be incredibly honest about how I was feeling uh, and how that was impacting me. And one of my very good friends made a referral to, to a counselor, to a, a psychologist. Uh, and so that was the, the second piece that sort of happened simultaneously. And the third and the, the piece that was the most within my control was setting some really firm boundaries for myself. And just because someone says this is what a good student affairs professional does when they work in housing, they work 100 hours every week in August. This is the job and that's just the way it is. Working with my, my supervisor and my colleagues and the staff that I supervise to really set some strong boundaries for myself because I, I do think that, I, I, or I used to think that I had this unending amount of energy that I could give to something at the expense of, of everything else. And it, uh, that was certainly not the case, especially when you hit a wall, there, there is a finite amount of resources. And so being very honest about myself and who I am uh, and my abilities, and I, I, to be honest, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at my job, um, but there was a finite wall that, or, or there was a wall that I hit, and there were certainly finite resources that I, I had access to. Using those three pieces, working with my doctor and with a couple different medications, and working with a, a counselor, uh, and working with myself to, to set some strong boundaries on on what actual self-care, not not token self-care of, oh, you know, have a take some time off of, of work for an evening and, you know, go for dinner and go to a movie like that. That's perfectly fine and good. But actually disconnecting from the experience and putting down the BlackBerry that I had at the time and and actually unplugging in, a, in an intentional way was was an essential piece for this, for sure. I want to point out two things that you said. First, that your the person that you sought care from was actually your doctor. Yeah. Your primary care doctor. Yeah. A lot of people think that you have to go to a psychologist or psychiatrist, specifically a psychiatrist, to get medication or to find ways to treat your illness. And one of the things that I think we undervalue is the impact that a primary care doctor can have. I actually, all of my prescriptions have been through my primary care doctor. I've never seen a psychiatrist. Yeah. But it goes back to what you said, which is you have to be willing to be honest with them. Yeah, I, uh, I've never actually seen a psychiatrist either. And it, in, in my head, I guess, it made the most logical sense since it was physical symptoms that, that my, my family doctor or my primary care doctor was the person that I, I reached out to. Uh, initially. Uh, she and I had had, we'd been building a relationship for almost a year previously for for some high blood pressure stuff, which is probably all interconnected to this, let's be honest. So it, it proved to be a really easy relationship to to deepen in order to, to be really honest and say, you know, this is how I feel. And uh, she became a great advocate for me because it's not just about throwing a prescription at it or or being like, yeah, well, just walk it off, you'll feel better. But really being honest about who I was, and uh, it was actually her words that she told me that, you know, I'm an advocate for you, uh, and so let's work through this together. This is not simply a case of, of me writing a prescription and being done with it. 
I would I would strongly recommend as that being the first the first start, especially if you have a good relationship with your family doctor for sure. Yeah, and a lot of psychiatrists can be hard to get into because there's so few of them mm-hmm. in proportion to the number of us that need assistance. Yeah, I was seeing my doctor was uh, at the campus uh, medical clinic at the time uh, at the institution I was working at. And, uh, and so they do have a psychiatrist on staff, but they were only there, I think, once a month. Yeah. And so that was not a, a logical place to start from. It, it certainly, I, I don't know how, how it would have played out differently, alternatively, but it certainly my primary care person was, was certainly the place to start from. That's great. The other thing that I wanted to call attention to was your comment about not having limitless energy, which reminds me a little bit of spoon theory. Have you heard of spoon theory before? No, I haven't. Okay. So I'm going to give you like a really probably horrible um, brief explanation, but um, I'll share with you uh, and I'll share with our listeners the link to the actual full blog post. There was a woman who has a chronic illness and I'm not going to tell you what it is because I will get it wrong. It's whatever I say, it's always the other, it's always something different. Mm-hmm. But she had a chronic illness and she was having lunch with a friend of hers in a diner. And her friend who had been helping care for her, you know, helping drive her to appointments and really been involved in her treatment, asked her, like, what does it feel like? And she's like, what do you mean? What does it feel like? You've been here. She goes, no, but what does it feel like? Like, how do you, what does an average day feel like for you? And this person, the woman kind of thought for a minute and looked around and saw a bunch of spoons on the tables around her. And so she grabbed all these spoons and probably about 20 spoons and she gave them to her friend. And she said, okay, here's your spoons. Those are the only spoons you have for your entire day. Mm -hmm. Okay, now you're going to get up and what's the first thing you do this morning? And the woman says, well, I get out of bed. She goes, okay, that's a spoon. And she's like, oh, okay. And she goes, well, I would take a shower. She goes, okay, that's two spoons. And so she starts taking this woman's spoons away. And and she gets to a point where she's like, okay, I have one spoon left. I'm still at work. What are my options here? My option is to drive home or it's to eat dinner or, you know, and so she's, she's got this limit on her spoons. And for people who don't have limits, that can be very hard to understand. And so it's this idea that no, like there is a certain point at which we run out. And so earlier in the day, we may start conserving our spoons because of the amount of energy it takes to manage a mental illness or chronic illness, because it really applies to both. We may start conserving our spoons in different ways than those who don't have to worry about saving them. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating analogy because it it, it really hits the nail on the head in terms of what are, and I always thought of it as a, as a battery, like on your phone. Yeah. Start the day at 100%, right? And depending on the day, it might be a quiet and easy day at work. So maybe by the end of the day, you, you're at 80%, right? Or maybe it's the middle of RA training and um, the day before move-in day, and you're at 0% by 3 p.m. Um, and so it, I always... I had a, a supervisor once upon a time tell me that to be a good a good residence life professional, you're just going to have to work a little harder. And I think that that is really terrible advice because working harder in the sense of what might work for one person is completely different for another person. And 
I so I pushed myself for for a long time. Okay, you just need to work a little harder. You just need to, you know, just be a, work a little harder, put a few more hours to make this to make this work. And that is definitely what led me to hitting a wall because I, I was so focused on doing what I thought was what a good student affairs professional does versus what uh, I can do within the limits of my my spoons, as it were. It was a really eye-opening uh, experience for me because I, I don't have unlimited spoons. Right. Maybe one day I, I will again have that. I mean, I'm not going back to my 20s anytime soon, though, so... <laughs> It, it will come back through a lot of, of hard work and, and determination to, to have the, that balance and those really strong boundaries. Uh, but in the moment right now, that, that I certainly don't have an unlimited supply of spoons by, by any stretch of the imagination. I, and I find it super fascinating. And I don't believe by any stretch of the imagination that you are the only person that's received that advice, that you need to work harder. Yeah. Why are we working harder? Why are we not working smarter? Yeah, my new my new supervisor I've had for uh, for just over a year now. They said that to me really early into my my tenure in this new position that uh, you don't need to work harder. You just need to work more. You need to work smarter or more efficiently. And I think that that is a fascinating way of approaching it because, particularly in residence life, it it just assumed that we're going to give 120% 100% of the time. And it's almost as if it's a badge of courage that we wear because, oh, well, you know, I put in 100 hours a week in August, so I'm actually, you know, great at this job. Versus someone who might just put in the, the you know, the required amount of time for our contract or our position description or whatever. And it, it really does feel like there's this badge of courage that, that we benchmark ourselves against other professionals and being like, well, I can't, I can't put in 100 hours a week in August anymore because, you know, I have a family or kids or a partner or whatever. And it, uh, it can be uh, a fascinating experience to watch us pit ourselves against each other because that's in someone's mind of what a good student affairs professional is, this unending basket of, of energy and joy and passion. Yeah, absolutely. Can't believe I just said absolutely. I so in listening to some of the podcasts we've recorded, I say absolutely a lot. So now every time I say it, I like stop. <laughs> so hopefully Sue will edit this part out. So we're doing this anonymously. Are you afraid to share with others in higher education about your mental illness? And and if so, why? I wouldn't. I mean, I'm pretty open about this with my family uh, and my close friends, for sure. And I actually, in working with students one-on-one who are also struggling, I've, I've shared a little bit of myself in terms of I, I've been there and I understand where you are right now. And that's not just something I'm saying to sound empathetic. I do understand what this journey looks like. In terms of what my, my supervisor or what my other colleagues, especially at other institutions, know, I'm pretty reserved about stuff like that because I do think that we spend a lot of time and a lot of resources supporting students, but as a professional staff member, there is an expectation that you'd be firing on all cylinders at all times, uh, especially when you're in a larger team and there's someone or there's other people that you, you uh, sort of have that imposter syndrome feeling about. Uh, and so I was also about a year and a half ago in searching for a new position. 
I, I was very concerned about it, about uh, sharing too much because I didn't want that to impact my, my job search at all. Because it's it's all fine and dandy to say, you know, oh, we're supportive and, you know, we embrace we embrace all forms of people. And But I think that as a supervisor, you're going to look for the best person to fill the job. And you're probably not going to hire someone who is open and honest about the fact that, you know, they do have a limit on their on their their spoons and they they are on a number of medications. Uh, I think at the end of the day, we can be judgmental, a judgmental species. And so I, especially in my job search, I was concerned about that information being shared around. Absolutely. Just did it again. (laughs) That's okay. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's really, really important to keep in mind. And I think that's a reason a lot of folks that we are talking to have kind of reached out because they're like, oh, you're doing it anonymously? Yes, then yes, I want to talk about this because yes, I think it's important, but I'm not quite ready to put myself at risk of not being able to get a job at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting too, because if you have something, if you have a physical illness or even a physical disability that somebody can see, you don't really have a choice about that maybe as Mm -hmm. much. And I think that we do a much better job protecting those. I won't say we always do a great job because that's just not true. Yeah. Because they're more visible sometimes, that can be easier to make sure that we're getting we're still getting employed and there's affirmative action around that. And I don't think that's always the case, but I, I think that sometimes that the hidden illnesses, even hidden physical illnesses, can be yeah. hard to share with others because of of the perceptions around those. Just knowing some of the previous supervisors I had, if I was open and honest about stuff like this, I know that that would have impacted my A, my ability to be hired, and B, to be, to be kept on after the contract ended, the initial contract ended. Because some supervisors just feel incapable of responding to, to stuff like this and to supporting it. And so... At the end of the day, we all have business outcomes we, we need to meet, occupancy and, and making sure that our, our deliverables are delivered. And just knowing some of the supervisors I've had in the past, I know that that would, would have been a, a deal breaker for sure. And I, I do think that stigma, that stigma is strong because people talk and there is still that negative connotation to, well, can't you just pretend to feel better? Right. Just can't you just, you know, walk it off? So it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a tough situation sometimes for sure. Well, what made you want to do this interview with the Committed Project? I am not actually one to, you know, be like, oh, my story is so special. But I was, I, I found myself enraptured by the idea of, of being very open and honest about my, my story for the first time. And if that can help someone else uh, understand or to be a better supervisor, or to be a better professional, then that is, is time well spent, I think, because there's nothing served by not being open and honest about, about who we are authentically. I hope that this has, has been helpful to someone out there in the world who is, who is listening to this, and you're not alone. There are other people sharing your experience, and there is nothing wrong with the way you are made. And uh, we, can, we can work together to, to, to erase that stigma. But it does, it does take talking 
uh, about it for sure. Well, we appreciate you Thank you. doing this with us. We believe the same thing, that we have to share our yeah, stories yeah. in order to help eradicate that stigma. Well, if you could suggest one thing that the higher ed community could do to decrease the stigma around mental illness and be a better place for people with mental illness to work and learn, what might that be? I, I think it comes down to reading or, or taking research in, talking about it, and putting strategic plans together as a team. We already do this with our students. We're already constantly putting together resources to better support our student communities and helping them thrive and helping them persist to graduation. So we just need to use that same creativity, that same level of energy, that same level of passion, and working with our colleagues in, in, in areas like human resources and, and campus wellness and, and other areas like that, uh, and creating opportunities for staff. Because at the end of the day, we're the ones delivering the services. And if we're not well, our work isn't going to be going to be well. Uh, and if we allow people to burn out and, and to quit, then there's all of that, that cost associated with, with hiring and recruiting someone else. And so why not keep the resources, the assets we have and, and help them be well and their, their work will be, will be well then. Great. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons that we felt like there was a gap and that we started doing the committed project was because we spent a lot of time putting resources together for mm. students. And someday those students go out into the workforce and some of those students become us. Yeah. So, okay, well, those are all my questions, but I always ask people at the end, it's like my final like job interview question. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you were like really wanting to share with our listeners um, or that you just really want to make sure that you talk about in regards to mental illness and higher education? Yeah, one of the things I would say, uh, and this will be my final comment, is that we spend a lot of time talking about building community, particularly in residence life, and we don't necessarily convey that as professionals in things like conferences and professional networks. And I think that everyone can stand, myself included, to being a little more kind and a little more empathetic and holding an empathetic space for, for our colleagues just as much as we would for our, our students. And I think that can, that can make the world a, a little bit of a better place if we make that effort to, to be more present and to hold that empathetic space for people. I really love that. I think you're right. I think it's beyond just being kind, although I think that's a really important first step, but it's that empathy that, that is a really important part of that. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you about your story, and I'm looking forward to sharing this with our listeners later. I can't wait to hear it. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Committed Podcast, where we're working to fight stigma for professionals working in higher education. You can find more of our work on our website, www.thecommittedproject.org and come say hi on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by shooting us a message at The Committed Project. If you liked what you heard or want to reach our contributors and let them know and thank them for contributing, <laughs> you can leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud or wherever you're listening. We hope that you'll share this story with someone you care about in higher education. If you or someone you know is in need of help, please contact the Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255.